Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Police Smith. Coming up, Dave Hayes, the weather nut on what snow to expect where in the 413. Got a question for the weather nut? Text us at 1-800-639-9120. UMass virologist Dr. Mandy Muller on where we're at with the virus that causes COVID on this, the third anniversary of the last normal day. And Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid on daylight savings time on the moon and on the Oscars. Shout out to Springfield's Ruth E. Carter, who has become the first black woman ever to win two Oscars. What, what? (laughs) (laughs) But first... Friday, the Healy Driscoll administration announced the creation of a director of rural affairs to ensure that Massachusetts rural communities are better represented in state government. The press release says it will be housed in the Executive Office of Economic Development. The director of rural affairs will serve as a dedicated advocate and ombudsman for rural communities. They'll be responsible for cultivating rural economic development and coordinating with secretaries and state agencies to ensure that state government is attuned to the unique needs of rural communities. We live in a rural community. And from the Healy Driscoll administration is the Lieutenant Governor, Kim Driscoll. Thank you for joining us here in the fabulous 413. Yeah, thanks for having me. I spent a lot of time here during the campaign and really feel a strong connection to making sure our communities are working as a former mayor. So it's great to be here. When you address the governor, you say your excellency. What do we say when we address the Lieutenant Governor? Uh, Kim would be good. (laughs) Kim. So simple. This is a, a, a big announcement from your administration. And you came and did a tour of different stops uh, in Greenfield and elsewhere to make this announcement. Tell tell us where you made the announcement. Yeah, we were actually in Deerfield, which does qualify as Mm -hmm. a a rural community. There's an official designation, most of which of those communities, their towns, are in western and central Mass. And there's actually a pocket in the Cape. So there's certain demographic sort of characteristics that make for what's considered a rural community. Mm -hmm. And we really felt like for far too long our rural communities didn't have the same access to both funding, some of the ways we initiate policies just tend to, you know, leave out our rural communities. And this particular position is really designed to help ensure as we think about dollars and policies that we've got rural communities in mind. Actually, dovetailing really well with that, Caitlin Marquis from Hamden County says she thinks the state government is very urban-centric, including the way it collects data. Is part of this role going to be developed in order to collect better data from rural communities? Yes and no. There's been a lot of groundwork already laid. The Rural Policy Advisory Commission has been operating for the last year and a half, maybe even two years. So there's a clean runway to understand and assess what the challenges are. So we do have a good sense of the fact that the way we do offer Chapter 90 funds for roadway infrastructure has a population characteristic. Chapter $70 tried to schools has a a, a per student uh, characteristic that doesn't benefit our rural communities. And so we need to think inwardly about how when we were doling out funding, we're not doing so in a way that negatively impacts our rural communities because they've got the same challenges, you know, educating our kids, keeping our neighborhoods safe, investing infrastructure in downtowns or in larger geographic regions, but they don't have the same access to funding. Some of that's because of those particular policies. NEPM has been having a a Have Your Say project where they're trying to have uh, our listeners say what they think that the priorities should be of the Healy Driscoll administration in the first 100 days. And Matt Barron, who lives in Chesterfield, a rural community, is really excited that you're appointing a rural affairs director. He says a bunch of other states have this kind of state-level position, and some are full and some are part-time. What can you tell us about what this role will be like, uh, how it will be staffed, who in Western Mass communities they'll be talking to regularly, and who it'll be? Yeah, so... (laughs) 
I don't have an answer to the last question. Okay. Uh, Can I guess? I, uh, <laughs> I know Matt. He actually has been a strong advocate for both <laughs> rural communities and rural economies. Uh, so this particular position, Director of Rural Affairs, will sit within our Housing and Economic Development uh, Cabinet Secretariat. So it's not technically a cabinet-level position itself, right? It's not, yeah. no. It's a director level. And mm-hmm. so the goal would be to make sure that we're thinking about both policies and funding and funding needs. So many of our rural communities don't have the same capacity on the ground because they don't have large amounts of staff to help cultivate the sorts of grant opportunities and assessments that are necessary to qualify for dollars. So this position, while it will sit in housing and economic development, it will offer a lot of cross-collaboration. So whether we're talking about uh, DESE or administration and finance or our climate, a lot of our climate goals are tied to, frankly, our rural communities where open space and forested areas contribute to meeting those goals, but we don't necessarily always think about how to fund those places and support them in the same way. So while it will sit in one cabinet secretary because it has to be in one location, we certainly think um, of this position as a a cross-collaborator and helping make sure both policies and dollars are being, um, you know, reviewed on a regular basis to have a better impact to our rural communities than we currently are. We're speaking with the Lieutenant Governor, Kim Driscoll, who with the Healy Driscoll administration have announced a new position of Director of Rural Affairs to ensure that Massachusetts rural communities are better represented. The NEPM News Department has been talking to people uh, following along on the announcement. And Tom Hutchinson is the town manager in Dalton, Mass. And he says this is welcome news and that the position can help towns acquire more funding. Some of it is the smaller capacity of small towns to work on grant programs and making sure that their towns are getting the same kind of benefits that larger towns get. But the announcement got a much different reaction from the select board chair in Conway, Philip Cantor. He says the creation of the rural affairs director position is just another example of Western Mass being forgotten about by Beacon Hill. We get a drive-by announcement of a creation of a new committee or a creation of a new position that basically has no long-term dedicated funding attached to it. Tell me your perspective on on those two takes on this new position, the Philip Cantor and Conway. Is this lip service or, or what is your administration going to do to make sure that it's not? You know, I can understand why a lot of folks in Western Mass, particularly local officials, feel forgotten. And one of the reasons we're putting this position in place is so we can bring more attentionality to the work that we're doing. So I wrote down Phil's name. I'm going to do some <laughs> outreach to him. This is not a this is not a drive by, you know, announcement and uh, check the box. This is going to be part of the next four years and our thinking and our implementation of projects and programs and initiatives designed to make sure that the whole of Massachusetts feels seen by the administration and is also having an opportunity to prosper. There are amazing economic opportunities in Western Mass. You know, I was the mayor of Salem for 17 years. I know what it's like on the ground. And the challenges aren't different. The neighborhoods, the characters are different, but you're still trying to deliver products that lead to the important quality of life that so much of us rely on. And uh, we think there's opportunities in everything we're doing, from tourism, marketing, education funding, infrastructure dollars, to be more thoughtful and more intentional to help support, you know, our rural community. So Phil is going to get a phone call from me. That's good. You heard it here first. We're going to bring him back here in three years and and see if we're doing okay. I find it really interesting that this new directorship is going to be under the umbrella of housing. We've got a question where a Boston City Council passed a rent control proposal. We're looking to get a home rule petition passed by the legislature. Where does your administration stand on this now? And what could it mean for cities 
like Northampton and Greenfield where rents are rising slash already astronomical. What does that mean for for us here? You know, I will say we think housing is one of the most critical issues facing the Commonwealth. Everywhere, housing is just too expensive for people living in communities, even in places where housing may be a little bit more affordable. Rents in parts of our communities and parts of our regions are uh, can, can vary, but they're still not more affordable to the people who are living there. And so one of the reasons we're um, looking to reorg current state government to create a, a secretariat for housing and livable communities is so that we can put more of a focus on housing housing, meeting our housing needs. Currently, we're 200,000 housing units short in the Commonwealth, which leads to those high rents in places that used to be more affordable. Like Salem is a gateway city. Greenfield, also a place that used to be the affordable place. And now folks who pour coffee, pour beer for a living, anybody who hands you anything over a counter cannot afford to live in communities. And we're inextricably linked. We rely on individuals in our daily lives, no matter where you live. So we're making a real focus and push on adding housing, housing production. We're only producing 20,000 housing units a year. We need so much more and making those connections to communities so that uh, we're supporting the infrastructure, the transportation, the ways that we can contribute to that. And we are supportive of communities having a local toolbox. Uh, we know what Boston's doing in terms of rent. It's more rent stabilization, I think, than rent control. Right. And understand that we want to be able to support local leaders having the tools that they need. There's a number of different communities looking at, hey, can, how do I use my Community Preservation Act dollars? You know, what tools are available? And so we'll see if it makes it to the legislature, but we're definitely open to supporting communities and meeting those needs. And a quick reminder that that doesn't necessarily just mean low-income housing. It also means the middle, which has been undermined greatly kind of across the board. The missing middle, the hardest one to solve. Folks who are making more um, so that they don't qualify for a subsidy, but not enough to support, you know, fast rising rents. Over half the renters in our communities are paying more than 30% of their income. They're housing insecure. And at the local level, we have got to find ways to produce more. We cannot say no to housing and expect that we're going to be the sort of environment. The character of our communities is at stake, bottom line. And so you're going to see a lot more on housing across the spectrum because we think this is a key priority. And the new position, the Director of Rural Affairs, will be under the umbrella of housing and economic development. We have an NEPM Have Your Say project, and we're speaking with the Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll. You can participate in this project and give feedback to the Healy Driscoll administration, the new administration here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And another question, both from the NEPM News Department, sort of, and from one of the listeners, Thomas Wainsblin. I hope I'm saying that right. Wainsblin. 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 We're closest. sorry, Thomas, we're if we sorry got it wrong. We butchered your name. Thomas <laughs> W. Yeah, we live in, <laughs> in Franklin County. That's what we should have done. <laughs> yeah, right. He told us he's concerned about unfunded mandates, especially for rural schools. And he says people are leaving the state to go to New Hampshire so that they can afford it. And he says the rural areas of Massachusetts are being left behind. And sort of dovetailing with that, Sam Hudzik, our news director here, is talking about how your administration is pushing lawmakers to add some money to make sure the Universal Free School Meals Program is funded through the school year. Some nonprofits and educators want the state to commit to a permanent Universal Free School Meals Program, but this current budget that was just released doesn't even fund that for the next school year. So can you help to bridge that or correct that or yeah, bridge that divide? Absolutely. So um, we do have a SUP budget that has incorporated funding for the rest of the school year. And there's another SUP budget that will be forthcoming before the end of the fiscal uh -huh. year that will fund fully fund school lunches uh, for the next fiscal year, which is fiscal year 24 starting in July. So we really see this as key uh, for working families, for our students uh, to be able to have the sort of educational support that we know that they need. Um, and it's been, as we've seen since the pandemic, uh, something that once it's put in place, it's just so many people appreciate it. You're talking about having breakfast and lunch in our classroom 
classrooms, not having to collect all the paperwork to determine, you know, uh, who might be economically disadvantaged. The federal government actually supports this in a large measure. So the state uh, contribution, while significant, is very doable. And we, you know, feel really strongly that food insecurity is a key need. And we want to make sure that's not happening to kids in school. So that's going to continue. We're speaking with the new lieutenant governor. Can we still call you new? It's still yeah, new. It's like so. It's only eight days. weeks. Yeah, so it right. feels so. new. Right. Less than 100 days. <laughs> and you're the, definitely new. We're on our honeymoon still. So. <laughs> You'd still be a, an infant if you were a baby. Um, and the new, very newly announced uh, director of rural affairs position that we're still hoping to find out who uh, who will lead that yeah. uh, and uh, any going contenders? Here? You know, we're just going through the process right now of uh, identifying potential applicants. So if folks are interested, they should reach out to the administration. We'll have an official posting. But we're excited about trying to find somebody who understands these issues. And as I said, there's been a lot of groundwork laid. The, the RPAC, as it's called, the Rural Policy Advisory Commission, did a lot of work to underscore what the needs are, where we see opportunities for us to really have some impact right away. And then over the next four years, this is not going to be solved in a year, but 36% increase for regional schools to try and tackle things, more support for regional transportation, trying to make sure we're being uh, intentional when it comes to things like food um, infrastructure security grants. Those are areas that we know farms in particular benefit from, many of which are part of rural communities. So, And, and there's many other things. Those are snapshots. Another big thing out here is east-west rail and the governor has put an emphasis on Pittsfield and Palmer as stops on this new East-West Rail and the idea that there would be a director to oversee East-West Rail. Any idea that that person may also come from West as opposed to East? I mean, it it would certainly make a lot of sense to make sure we have key stakeholders on the ground involved. This is going to be a technical position. So you're you're developing a a fairly large project tied to a lot of connections that already exist relative to rail. So we want to make sure they have the skill sets from an engineering capacity, but we'd welcome somebody from this region. We're, We're trying to certainly hire up and staff with geographic diversity in mind. Because once you have folks around the table who come from different backgrounds, different perspectives, and live in different regions, you know, there's no out of sight, out of mind. It can really be thoughtful and help us, we think, be better leaders in the work that we have to do. But I want to settle something. Is it east-west rail or is it west-east rail? West-east rail. West. <laughs> I. It's the train. And when it runs, I will be incredibly happy. It goes being, both ways. Be, exactly. Like so many people in Western Mass. <laughs> Stop looking at me when you I say didn't, that. I was just happened to be looking in that direction. <laughs> no, you can look at me. Okay. I, I fill the role. Uh-huh. So, um, as you mentioned, you've only been in office for about like eight weeks. Yeah. How are you feeling about your your role as lieutenant governor? How are you viewing your role as lieutenant governor? You know, a lot of gratitude, I would say. I think both the governor and I feel very fortunate to be in these positions that we're able to hopefully be good stewards of the resources that we have. We've come into this leadership role at a time when we're sort of not going back to the way we did things before the pandemic, but it's not fully straightened out in terms of what's next, whether it's industry or education. We're still in this uh, transition phase, and we feel really fortunate. And uh, I think we're really optimistic about how we can partner with people on the ground in places where they live and where they work. To, to make a meaningful impact. And so I feel really grateful that I'm partnered with a great governor who really believes in shared leadership. I've been a mayor for 17 years. She's been a rock star AG, and our skill sets kind of complement each other. And um, so I feel, uh, like I said, a lot of gratitude we both feel and a lot of optimism for using the resources that we have and the positions that we have to try to make a difference here. Privately in my home, my, since my partner and I are both Trekkies, we refer to it as legislative second puberty uh-huh. just because it's a, it's a mess, but there's a lot of potential for growth, which is exactly what happens to Klingons. (laughs) (laughs) I am so not a Trekkie, but I think that was good, what you just said. I wouldn't worry about it. I think it was good. All right. Okay. 
<laughs> Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll, you and the governor both played collegiate basketball. Are you following March Madness? Are you rooting for any, especially of the women's teams, especially uh, here in the western part of the state? Yeah. You know, we just left MGM, and this is like the first day for online betting. So it was like, uh, what are you doing? You know, who are you voting? Who are you voting for? No. We've both been so busy, we haven't really been able to follow it as much. But, you know, there's obviously a lot of excitement around women's hoop these days. And uh, we're grateful, for me anyways, team sports and playing competitively has been a big part of my life. So um, Keep you your know. eye on UMass Amherst woo, women's woo. team and Smith College. They're both doing pretty, pretty awesome. well. Good to know. And we still would love you and the governor to take us on a tour of the uh, basketball hall of fame and, oh, and teach love me it. a thing yes. or two. I mean, part of our budget includes significant additional investments for tourism, promotion, and marketing, you know, hailing from Salem, the third most visited destination in Massachusetts. Nice. We really feel like there's opportunities in Western Mass to better support not only the Basketball Hall of Fame, personal favorites of the governor and I, but also <laughs> there's a number of amazing museum complexes and great stories to tell here across this Western Mass region, and we need to help our communities tell that, not only because of the uniqueness, but because it's dollars. It contributes to the local economy. That's people who are going to shop and eat here, stay longer, all of that's good. And also encourage like some of the places that are more summer focused to do things like come in the fall. It's really, you don't just have to look at the leaves. Right. Come in the winter. Those you, shoulder seasons. We promise you won't just get stuck here in the snow, <laughs> especially not with climate change. Hey, we've got a great ski slope in Pittsfield. Like oh, there's, right? there's stuff to celebrate and there we gotta, you. we gotta tell it, you know. <laughs> Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll, thank you so much for joining us here in the Fabulous 413. We hope to hear more from you. We hope uh, we have an opportunity to have our listeners ask more questions of you and the governor going forward on this show. And we're excited to hear more about who will be and what the Office of Director of Rural Affairs will come to be here for uh, Western Mass in particular. Well, thanks so much for having me on. We really care about being an administration that represents all parts of the Commonwealth. We're big fans of Western Mass. And not only will we be here, uh, I'll come back. I look forward to it. This Yay. has been fun. Thank all right? you. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll watch some Star Trek so I can better, <laughs> you know, I can better talk to you about start that. With, it's the wrong series to tell you to start with, but start with Deep Space Nine. Oh, my God. You really are a Trekkie. You weren't kidding around. Yeah. But in all seriousness, thank you for having me and know that we stand committed to making sure that as Massachusetts moves forward, Western Mass is at the forefront of a lot of our work. Thank you to the Lieutenant Governor. Coming up later in the show, Dave Hayes, the Weather Nut, with the scoop on the storm. Got a question for the Weather Nut? Text us, 800-639-9120. And next, looking back on three years of pandemic with UMass virologist Dr. Mandy Muller. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Dr. Mandy Muller is a professor in the microbiology department of UMass Amherst, and she is my favorite virologist who three years ago volunteered on my previous radio show to be a resource to listeners answering their questions about virology and one virus in particular, SARS-CoV-2, the virus responsible for the disease we've all come to call COVID-19. Today's the third anniversary of what I've been calling the last normal day. It was Friday the 13th of March 2020. Khalees and I happened to do the exact same thing three years ago on that last normal day. It the was Friday the 13th. a Friday the 13th. Yeah. I will remind everybody We should also. have known. It was uh, the <laughs> band, uh, the Providence-based band Arc Iris doing a an immersive like theater musical thing at the Shea that was about a dystopian future. And who knew we were about to go into that dystopian future for three years. And here we are now once again with Dr. Mandy Muller. Before we go any further about virology, Dr. Muller, what, what was the last normal thing you remember doing three years ago today? 
Well, actually, I was teaching my virology class. Um, so we were talking about viruses and what was happening and what our potential future would look like. But we didn't know it would be that. <laughs> yeah, did it make it more exciting because it was kind of unfolding? Your class was like literally unfolding before your very eyes. <laughs> yeah, well, we were talking about it every week because in my classes, I always have a little segment called viruses in the news. And so we always talk about viruses that are popping up in the news. And so since January, we were talking about this. We're a new virus coming from China. Uh, <laughs> and then it just unfolded in front of us. Did you have any idea at that time that it was going to unfold in the way that we would be talking about it? as it is still continuing to happen three years later? Not at all. I mean, I think in the virology community, we kind of always expect that some viruses will pop up here and there, uh, you know, jumping from animals to humans. But I don't think we were thinking that it would spread so quickly and around the world so fast. And so I think it took everyone by surprise. COVID is still a reality that we're living with. We're still wearing masks most of the time in the building. When we're here, I wear masks when I do my Kung Fu class still. And the pandemic isn't over. And it's caused this unimaginable, really, tragedy that we haven't even begun to process. The World Health Organization last week said that globally 759,408,703 confirmed cases of COVID, including 6,866 1,434 deaths. I mean, that's, each one of those is an individual human life that this virus has taken from us, and, and we still um, are, are coping with that, I think, to a great degree. We have become more virus literate, I think. Is that your estimation, Dr. Muller? Like we now know uh, Greek a little bit better with things like Omicron variant. Do we know as a society, in your estimation, as a virologist, more about viruses than we did before the pandemic began? People are certainly more aware, and you can see it even in the news, all those articles popping up all the time and always trying to kind of spring fears in people's hearts with new viruses. Uh, so certainly people are more aware. Whether or not we have learned more, <laughs> I think the coronavirus experts would tell you that they knew a lot about these viruses beforehand. But we are certainly, as a society, more aware of those viruses being around and of public health measures and how a role in a community really impacts how these viruses spread, for sure. Because people, um, coronaviruses have existed long before what they started calling the novel coronavirus. And there was another, who knew it was going to be an epic novel uh, <laughs> like this one? It's just a kind of virus that we had never seen before. As a virologist, remind us what made the novel coronavirus so novel? Yeah, so coronaviruses, they've been around for a very long time. Most likely a lot of the, you know, Human cold that you get in the winter uh, are caused by some mild coronaviruses. And coronaviruses are also notorious to infect a bunch of animals. And so these viruses, they're always around and they're all slightly different from one another. What made this one novel is that all of a sudden it jumped from animals to humans, which, you know, it happens from time to time. But the difference here is that then it could go from human to human, which is always the necessary condition to turn an animal virus into a pandemic virus. Have you seen or heard anything about the new variants that concern you or with the long-term effects, especially with some of the things that are now coming out about long COVID, things that bother you or, or are on your radar that you're paying more attention to? Yeah, well, certainly we're continuing to see new variants 
emerging here and there, uh, and that's because those viruses continue to circulate. So this is something that we expect to see in the near future, new variants. And it's very hard to predict, you know, if one of those will be worse or if eventually it will just continue to circulate without really bothering us anymore. So certainly this is something on my radar, looking at those variants. Uh, And then the long-term effects, that I think was a big surprise in the field because with these viruses, you expect to entirely clear infection, you know, after two weeks, if you're, you know, still here after two weeks. Mm. Uh, And so having those long-term effects is, I think, something that's very new. uh, And we are just scratching at the surface of how that works and how we can try and prevent it beyond, you know, reminding people to not get infected if they can. I'm curious about pediatric effects of COVID. I heard uh, a sad story anecdotally about a child of a friend who caught COVID very young, early stages of the pandemic, and now is having, as a three-year-old, these chronic lung issues. Now, while you can't say one for one necessarily that it was the COVID that's causing this, are you hearing anything about the long-term effects either in children who caught it very early or in children who are catching it now? Well, I think in children, the long-term effects are maybe not more rare, but at least because they have symptoms that are a bit milder than adults and older people, I would say that it's not something that we see a pattern for, uh, but it's totally possible. And it's true that children, we've seen some syndromes associated with COVID infection, and so it's certainly a possibility. I don't think right now we have a clear pattern, but like for all of us, really, uh, some of those long-term effects may hit later on. As we start to relax some of the COVID protocols, we see it with community colleges relaxing their mask mandates and many other places relaxing them as well. How do you think we as a region, as Western Mass, are doing with the current still ongoing pandemic? (laughs) Well, I would say that we're not doing too badly. And I think it's true. It has been true for the entire pandemic. And I don't know if it's our sense of community or I don't know where it stems from. But I think people were very deliberate about wearing masks and being very careful and, you know, even leading to some events being canceled and things like this. And so I think we've done good because we have this sense of we are just one person in a larger community. So we need to do our part. I think that the relaxing of the mask mandate and everything was always something that we knew was coming. Uh, And I at least hope that people are more aware of, you know, having symptoms and feeling a little bit under the weather. And so in those situations, maybe being more sensitive about not going out and in public. That's my hope. We're speaking with Dr. Mandy Muller, who is a virologist from the microbiology department at UMass Amherst, who was a resource three years ago weekly for my listeners uh, answering questions about viruses in general, about the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19. And you mentioned then and you mentioned even now uh, that we were talking about learning about uh, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 and the jump from animal to human and then human to human. Over the last couple of weeks, there have been all sorts of reports and uh, agencies in the U.S. and elsewhere talking about perhaps that this was not a jump from animal to human. The Washington Post from the end of February says FBI Director Christopher A. Ray said that COVID-19 most likely originated from a lab incident in Wuhan, China. The U.K. Telegraph headline from March 8th, no one believed the COVID Wuhan lab leak theory 
Then the world changed its tune. A BBC report from March 9th, COVID-19 origin debate squashed. Ex-CDC chief Dr. Robert Redfield claims that he was sidelined over his views on the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. As a virologist who's looked at this virus, tell me what your take is on these news reports about the potential leak versus what was the long-held going theory in the scientific community that was a leap from animal to human. So I think just to clarify in the scientific community and especially in, you know, my circle of virologists, I would say that nothing has changed. The prevailing theory is still a jump from animal to human that happened most likely on the Wuhan market. I think like a lot of things that we've seen throughout this pandemic, uh, we are kind of moving away from scientific facts and data and moving more into the realm of political debate and, you know, challenges. And so I think that as of right now, at least in the scientific community, the overwhelming amount of data is pointing to this natural spillover event that we see over and over in many different contexts. Uh, So it's certainly not a surprise. And all the data, the sequencing data, the sampling of the first patients and things like this are all pointing to this natural origin. I am not aware of what this supposedly new data that came out from the FBI and the DOE is. And so I'd be curious to look at it. But right now, I don't know what it is. Uh, But I would say that up until at least right now, we all agree that it comes from a natural event. And I even think that the lab leak theory, as they call it, I don't think at this point, anyone is even claiming that this virus is sort of a man-made virus, that this was something that was created in this lab. And I think right now what they're trying to assess is whether someone got infected in this lab by studying this virus and then eventually spread it out. That's what Um, I was wondering, because I'm I'm never hearing anybody talk about that. Couldn't it be both? Couldn't it be that there was a lab there, it leaked somehow, and also then jumped? Like, I'm not hearing a ton of... That could scientifically... I'm I'm asking you to speculate, which scientists hate to do, but that (laughs) is not out of the realm of possibility. I mean, the problem with that is that... There's a lot of baggage with this because all the data that we have and even the investigation in this lab is pointing to the fact that these scientists were not studying this virus before. Uh, And so if you're going down this road, what you're saying is that they were secretly working on this virus and then there was a accidental exposure, uh, which I think that comes with a lot of heavy baggage to it and a lot of even some underlying racism and, and how we trust other scientists. And so that's why I think it becomes more political than scientific at this point, because, you know, the facts are this virus looks like an animal virus and then eventually acquired the proper mutation to then jump into humans. And that is coming from a virologist, not an FBI director, somebody at a (laughs) lab at UMass studying viruses all the time. Dr. Mandy Muller on this, the third anniversary of what I've been calling the last normal day, Friday, the 13th of 2020. This is a bit of a sidestep, but every time I see viruses like on a slide or like it, a sample of them, they look like strange eldritch gods. What's your favorite one to look at? <laughs> Good question. Uh, I love looking at viruses. I have plenty of those in my office. I think I'm going to be very selfish in my answer, and I will say that the herpes viruses are the best. They're really big. Uh, they have a lot of different components, so their shape is really beautiful. Um, but yeah, mostly they always look like very intricate machineries. Yeah, I love working on viruses and looking at them. Because your main field of expertise is herpes, right? 
That's right. The gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> That's we'll call not it what we call it. The glitter, <laughs> the glitter of the virus world. If, no, if uh, glitter is the herpes of the craft world, then herpes the glitter, is the glitter of the virus world. I don't like that analogy at all. I mean, I don't question its accuracy, <laughs> but I also don't like it. Because you can't get rid of herpes, right? Am I right about that? That's right. Yeah, you That's can right. only treat it. And Dr. Muller, we all have herpes. Is that also correct? That is correct. Everybody who's listening right now has herpes. You're welcome. I just gave it to you over the radio. No. Why do we why do we all have herpes? Don't don't start that now. <laughs> <laughs> so herpes, uh basically we all have at least one kind of herpes. And so you don't have to think cold sores or anything like this. You know, even if you had chicken pox as a kid, then that means you are infected one one type of herpes. Uh if you had mono, that's another type of herpes. So there are plenty of different types of herpes. So chances are you are infected as of now. Uh and the reason why we can't really get rid of them is that they are outsmarting us, basically. And so they our immune system is not able to kick them out. And they're outsmarting us because we, can correct me if I'm wrong again, we don't know what viruses are in regards to whether they're alive or not. Like they're bac- little eldritch gods. Yeah. We already had this talk. <laughs> Bacteria are alive, you know, and but viruses are somewhere in between. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. They're kind of in between, uh, but that's just, based on our definition of life. They're they're very successful at what they do, so they, they deserve our respect. So that's that's my take on it. <laughs> because yeah, they're not neither living nor dead. That's scary enough. I know that it was fungus that was the part of the Last of Us video game and TV series and we tried to get a mycologist on to talk about that crazy thing, but yeah, viruses in and of themselves which we all they're get like, they're are, like body golems. Yeah, they're pretty scary. Um, <laughs> and yet we all have them and most of them are benign. That's the other thing I learned from you too, right? That's right. We actually carry many different viruses and and we don't even know that they're with us. So really they're using us and without us even knowing this. So again, they're outsmarting us. Dr. Mandy Muller from the microbiology department at UMass. In the early part of the pandemic, you were one of the most cautious people that I knew. We wouldn't even do the outdoor dining. The first time I think I saw you in real life was watching Khaleesi's band, The Soul Magnets, on Amherstown Common. Oh, the one where I lost my voice and was horrified? No, it was a daytime one. It wasn't the, it wasn't oh, the block that party. One, that was yeah. a good one. It was like okay. the, it was a big, on the like, common, the common. That yeah, one was a good show. That was a good show. But as the uh, variants continue in some way, shape, or form, they are usually less virulent, I guess, going forward. Are we at a point where we can think about this coming to an end? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel where this is something that we are living with? Are we there now? And or should we be taking more precautions than we're taking to Have get to that point? Have we made the jump to endemic? Yeah. I think we're, we're there now. Uh, I don't think anything major is going to happen in the future. So again, just to clarify, the variants are not less virulent is that we are more apt to respond to them. So mm-hmm. if those new variants that we have now, if these were the first one that came out back in 2020, it would have been even worse. But now, of course, with time, we have those vaccines that work very well. We have immunity from past infections. And so now when we're exposed to these new variants, they're not affecting us as strongly but that's because we learn to deal with them. But they are certainly very virulent. So I think in the future, what's going to happen is that those variants are going to continue to pop up regularly. I think one thing that's a little surprising is that in the past, we've seen these type of viruses like influenza uh, more as winter viruses, but it seems that with COVID-2, it might be a year-round type of you know cycle mm. that we will see. But I don't think anything major is going to change from now on, at least as far as I can tell. 
you think we should still be getting the boosters? Oh, absolutely. This is your best chance against those viruses is to keep your immunity up to date. So absolutely get those boosters. Dr. Mandy Muller. The Muller Report from the UMass Microbiology Department, our resident virologist. I'm so glad we don't have to check in every week because it feels like we are, uh, <laughs> the world is collapsing in on us like it was three years ago. But, <laughs> but it's always. But if you see something on the horizon, yeah. please do let us let know. Let us know because it's always a delight <laughs> to talk to you. I learn so much from you every single time and uh, it's always so much fun. Don't ever hesitate to reach out if you've got something interesting. I mean, I'm keeping my eye on that um, avian influenza. Oh, good. popping up everywhere. So, <laughs> is it the? I mean, is it the same one that's affected all the chickens, or is it something different? Yeah, that would be coming from one that's affecting the seals in South America, the minks in Spain. Uh, okay. Right now, I think everyone is on edge to see if it gets that final uh, change to jump to humans. Oh, <laughs> good. Well, let us know. <laughs> let us know as soon as you can. <laughs> Coming up, Dave Hayes, the weather nut, with which kind of snow to expect wherever you are in the 413. Got a question for the weather nut? Text us at 1-800-639-9120. And we'll talk Oscars and Moonlight Savings Time with Mr. Universe, Dr. Salman Hamid. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Have you called astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe, and Amherst Cinema board member? Are you disappointed that everything, everywhere, all at once cleaned everybody's clock at the Oscars <laughs> last night? No, I, I'm actually really uh, happy. Look, I didn't think it was a bad movie. <laughs> I, just thought, I just thought it was fine. I think it was great in terms of diversity. I mean, I think uh, that pretty much balanced out, like maybe like you know, last hundred years. I don't think it went that far. Maybe the last three. <laughs> I think it was worth staying up and Jimmy Kimmel was funny. I thought he was really funny. Uh, and I don't begrudge anything, even though Tar was a better film, but that's <laughs> not the point of Academies. <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia never won the Oscar. That doesn't make it a bad film. Citizen Kane didn't win, so that's okay. Uh, I loved the acceptance speeches, yeah. uh, but my favorite one was the acceptance speech by the best song for the Oscars. Oh my God. Natu, Natu, because he brought in yours and I's my favorite, like, you know, Karen Carpenter. Oh my God. <laughs> RRR has to win pride of every Indian and must put me on the top of the world. That movie is my second favorite movie of the year, RRR. And that song is pure joy. Uh, again, I'm not going to say too much about the movie because again, we'll get upset about it. But <laughs> I loved it. The song, unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like, even at the Oscars when it ha was happening, it was just like, there was a completely different level of energy. Yeah. <laughs> And I should mention for people who don't know that, that Carpenters, there is one song about calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft. Wow, nice one, because that is... Uh, Talking well, to aliens. Welcoming the aliens. Hampshire called astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe, with our kitchen table astronomy here. Many people this Monday are tired because we decided as a nation once again to sacrifice an hour of sleep for an hour of sunshine. Daylight savings time has begun. I admit I was thrilled to see the sun out at 7 o'clock last night, and I can deal with a lot less sleep than people as I got up at 2 o'clock in the morning for 17 years. But... There's a time zone change on the moon proposed as well. 
Right, because people on the moon get so much sleep, like (laughs) because they are luminous. Because it's nighttime there. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yes. No. So this is actually a really interesting problem. What time would be on the moon? And you would think, hey, wait a minute. I haven't thought about it. Right. Well, that's exactly right. But now, this past November, a European Space Agency, NASA, and a bunch of other space agencies got together to figure out how should we standardize time on the moon. Why do we care if what time it is on the moon? So there are a couple of things with that. One is time flows differently on the moon. And this is what's crazy. I mean, people, I think, know this generally. But even on our own planet, if you are up on the top of a mountain, time flows differently in a higher elevation than it does closer to sea level. That's crazy. Uh, that's right. And, and I mean, of course, you need to have instruments that can measure that, right? I mean, if you don't have instruments to measure seconds that precisely, you won't know that. Right. But we do. Not just that we have instruments that can measure time precisely, but that precision is now necessary, for example, for navigation. Mm -hmm. And this is the problem that we are going to face on the moon. So they have been using time, but the way they have been using it is with respect to the Earth. And that works if there are few spacecrafts or you're the only one, for example, Buzz Aldrin or whatever, like, you know, they are going, that is okay. Yeah. The problem is now they are going to be, there already are multiple spacecrafts orbiting or there are down there. And in the next couple of years, there's going to be a traffic jam over there. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just about what time you are keeping. It's also about what time others are keeping. Not to mention once you have landers on the ground, they are communicating with the spacecraft that are orbiting and so on and so forth. So that is the challenge. And that leads to some fascinating problems of, what time should we use? Is the moon going to be one time zone? It's three hours earlier right now in California on the other side of our own country. What are they going to do with a moon? We don't know. So, so this, these are, so there are some of the, uh, there are some of the ideas. One is that all everybody agrees on that we are going to synchronize it based upon the earth. And of course there are problems with that because as I mentioned, clocks or the second would go a little bit faster on the moon because it has slightly less gravity. Because the space-time continuum, the fabric of space and time, has everything to do with gravity. Time is not one thing. Read Carlo Rovelli's The Order of Time. It's like pop, space-time continuum, astrophysics. It's beautifully written and wonderful and will blow your mind. Right, and and, and so it's not about the me- simply the issue of, hey, you can just change the clock. No, time is physically different. And so what they estimate is that the day would be about 56 millionth of a second. The clock would 24 hours would go a little bit faster on the moon compared to the earth. So every day after 24 hour period compared to the earth, there's going to be a difference of 56 millionth of a second or 56 microseconds. So then in 56 million years, our clocks will be off by <laughs> one second. Right. But this, that doesn't sound like it matters. A but this <laughs> already would be a problem in terms of navigation, in, in uh-huh. terms of computers and things like that. By yeah. the way, uh, our own satellites, they also have to take that into account between, for example, geosynchronous orbit, which is far out 22,000 miles up versus on the ground. So we actually have to take general theory of relativity into account. So again, somebody says, how do we know Einstein was right? Well, if you use GPS, that's how we know. I mean, we know other ways too. Because this this whole theory came from Einstein, has been proven time and time again about the closer you are to a source of gravity, the slower time moves, right? And the faster, the further away. Right. But here is the thing. On Earth, 
we have all agreed it's called universal uh, coordinated time or utc in paris there is a standard of time everybody actually goes and measures it with that this is not gmt really greenwich mean time that is the time zone and then there that's is the this time they always use on the bbc radio hour. right exactly but then you have utc which is what is the unit of time and everybody has to agree on and on earth we do we need to have the same thing on the moon and then figure out what kind of time zone we are going to use. But here is, to me, one of the more fascinating things is that on the moon, and I think you referred to it, a day is 29 and a half days long, Earth days. And the problem is that if you have astronauts, evolutionary-wise, we are trained in terms of 24-hour rhythms. And so how do we match up with those things? And I think that's a really fascinating problem. Yeah, one long 29-day long day, you could get so much more done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you'll be younger. So those are all the questions that people are figuring it out because China is planning on going. They have uh, shown a picture of their big, big rocket booster. So China is definitely planning on going to the moon in the next decade. Uh, Artemis II, that's going to happen next year in 2024 with potential landing on the moon in the coming years after that. So we are already seeing a lot of activity on the moon in order to have these kind of things without incident and also in order for spacecrafts to communicate themselves. So they don't always have to synchronize it with Earth. They will have to work it over there. That is what the moon time issue is. And a European Space Agency has a plan right now in which they are trying to have these four satellites that is going to communicate with the lander. They are trying to build that up on the moon, not on Earth. This is about the moon. What time will it be on the dark side of the moon all the time? That would be about like Pink Floyd. It's always Pink Floyd time. <laughs> they do have that song time on the dark side of the moon. Oh my goodness, it's all coming together. <laughs> Coming up, Dave Hayes, the weather nut, with what kind of snow terribles to expect here in the four counties of Western Mass and possibly beyond. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. Dave Hayes, the weather nut, is a Western Massachusetts curator, delving deep into weather sciences and putting a personal twist on weather reporting with a valley-centric focus concentrating on the four westernmost counties of Massachusetts, which we call the Fabulous 413. Dave Hayes has over 53,000 followers on Facebook, 5,000 more on Twitter, and it's a community-supported forecaster at westernmassweather.com. I'm not allowed to tell you to go support him there. Hypothetically, if someone, Dave Hayes, were to be driving from Turner's Falls to Springfield at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, what should that someone expect? <laughs> Dave Hayes? Oh, no. This is live radio. <laughs> You're listening to the fabulous 413. <laughs> oh, we've got some texts for Dave Hayes, too. Well, Khalees, what do you think I should do? Should I stay in Springfield tomorrow night? I have night? a feeling that it's probably going to be generally okay here. It's probably not going to be okay in Turner's Falls. And although I'm no <laughs> authority like Dave Hayes is. <laughs> so I should maybe be prepared to come to Springfield but not return to Turner's Falls. I think that's probably. Okay, Dave. Oh, good. Can you hear us now, Dave Hayes? Yes, but at oh. least you're not living in the, the western hill towns and the Berkshires, because it's going to be worse there. Oh, yeah. all right. Well, this is another question that we got via text from John in Springfield. He says, what do you think about chances of school closures in Springfield? And do you think Valley Districts will need to close tomorrow? Not that you bear the responsibility for the safety 
of all of Western Mass. But just uh, you think that they'll end up closing? You know, it's a good question. I I, I think that um, we're definitely from Northampton down to you know Springfield down to Enfield. I think it's going to be a much much less of a, of a snowy impact. Um, they who knows? Maybe the districts will make the decision because it hasn't been a very uh, ferocious winter by any stretch. But um, I think the further north you go in the valley the chances kind of go up that you might see some closures. That tracks. Okay, so what are we expecting tonight, let's say, if we lived in North Adams? Yeah, so if you live in North Adams, you live in the Berkshires, it's, it's, you're going to start seeing snow developing and increasing overnight. It may still be mixed with rain. and some There's some valley areas like Great Barrington. It's kind of a valley area. So, um, But generally in the Berkshires and Western Hill Towns, it should start to, the snow should pick up overnight. And, uh, and then we should see rain picking up overnight in the valley, which should turn to snow sometime, I think, by mid to late morning tomorrow, maybe towards noon. And hopefully we'll skip that frozen ice, this frozen rain stage. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's, let's skip the, uh, I think as Philip Price from Winter Pills once said, sleet is hateful. Yes. <laughs> Nobody's favorite weather is sleet. So if you're, no. if you're in the Hill Towns, if you're in the Berkshires, between tonight and Wednesday, best estimate of, of how much snow they might see versus how I, much we might yeah. see in the Triangle of Disappointment, as you call it, in the Valley. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think that a, a good uh, 10 to 20 inches of snowfall, again, it's an elevation-dependent snowstorm. Oh, good. That's, classic snowstorm. Yeah. We, yeah. Mi- we might need to check in with you again tomorrow, Dave Hayes, the weather nut, if that's okay with you to get an update. Is it still going to be going on tomorrow at this, you know, Yeah, tomorrow's the, kind of the, tomorrow's the brunt of the storm. And then I think in the valley, kind of from Northampton south, it's more like three to six inches of snow um, because it's going to rain for a while overnight and then into part of the morning. And then it should change to snow by noon. All right. Well, we apologize for the technical difficulties. And we'll have more with you tomorrow, I hope. Dave Hayes, the weather nut. Tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, we'll also have Amherst College professor Dr. Elon Stavans on his new book, The People's Tongue, chronicling the changes in American English through the centuries. We'll also be joined by Merriam-Webster editor and NEPM jazz host Peter Sokolowski, who's featured in the book. Thanks to our director, Tony Dunn, Snow Bunny in training. Our engineer is Betsy, all bundled up with baby Cordis. Our technical team is Kara, oh no, what now, Foster, Bart, pick it up, pick it up, Rankin, and Punk Rock Dubay. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar, Orchestra, Sun Lux, The Carpenters, Thomas Dolby, Pink Floyd, and the Oscar winners behind this song, Not Too Not Too. It's such a beautiful song. I want to learn the dance. I'm Kali Smith. And you're no, Monty Belmonte. Oh, yes, I'm still Monty Belmonte. <laughs> See you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413. <laughs>